You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Good morning. A very warm welcome to you. Um, just to say, um, Steph's not here this morning. Our, our youngest is, is really quite ill. Uh, for those of you that have been here uh, a little while, you will know that in the lead up to Cause to Live For, I feel like I've said this virtually every year on this week. Um, you could actually plan a diary by it. She has been on a course of antibiotics every two weeks for the last two months. And um, I'm not trying to make too big a deal of it, but there's definitely a degree of resistance. And I see that in multiple other areas and multiple other places. Um, somebody uh, who oversees part of the Alpha said to me this week that this year's Alpha is the most contended it has been since we planted the church. And um, obviously I want to dull down some of it, but I also just want to say, pray. Pray for us, pray for the church, pray for the moment we're in. Um, there is definitely something around Cause to Live For that kicks up some stuff. And um, we want to stand and we want to intercede and we want to press back for that. I am reminded of um, Charles Spurgeon once said, I've learnt to kiss the wave that crashes me against the rock of ages. And in these moments, would it be we just fall more in love with Jesus and we depend more on him? Kids get ill, things do happen, there are circumstantial shifts, but equally I do acknowledge sometimes as a church, as individuals, we're resisted, and it's, it's worth knowing that, and it's worth being aware of that. As a, as a jump in this morning, though, I just want to tell you a little dream that I had this week. Um, I don't do this, but this was in my dream. I was riding a, a motorbike down the motorway, and I don't know if this is even possible, but I'd got the motorbike in cruise control and I was dipping in and weaving in and out of traffic and the engine cut out and I tried to restart it. I don't know if you've done that with a car, but the car sometimes like jolts as you maybe stall it. And anyway, it jolted. And in my dream, this motorbike jolted about 10 times. And um, I was in the deepest of deep sleeps and I started to wake up. I don't know if you've had those moments, but you've been in a very deep sleep and for some reason you start to wake up. You're almost like a bit, delirious you're not fully sure who you are and what you are um, and whilst I'd been jolting in my dream I was also aware that I was like physically jolting actually this wasn't just a dream thing this was a real thing and it was almost like someone was repeatedly stabbing me in the hip and I was like oh, like this and um, I'm a little bit of a princess I sleep with earplugs um, I'm just going to get that out there um, <clears throat> anyway one of them has come out and I hear I hear these words in my ear I need a wee I need a wee daddy I need a wee and uh, my daughter's jabbing Stabbing me in the hip, uh, and my my dream has collided with like a real life interaction, and I'm jolting almost like I'm getting an electric shock. And Steph is like standard banter; she's like sound asleep. She would just sleep through a hurricane. And um, I kind of wanted to say this this morning. I I don't know if you've ever found in your journey with Jesus that sometimes you can be in cruise control, and sometimes even in your relationship with Jesus, the engine can cut out. And you can stall, but you kind of stay in cruise control. You don't fully realize or acknowledge it. And I kind of want to say, sometimes I think, actually, we, we need a jolt. Sometimes you need one of those moments where you're like, hang on a minute, what is going on here? And we're right in the middle of a series that I've called How To, because I want us to be equipped in how to do the stuff that Jesus did in the way that he did it. John 15 verse 8 says, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to the Father. Would we be fruit producers? 
Verse 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. Some of you need to be jolted to either get back on track or get on track in the first place because the Father's doing something remarkable among us. I heard just this week that somebody had watched the recent baptisms online. They're not in this church and they don't live in this area, but in that moment they gave their life to Jesus. And with hindsight now a few weeks on, from that moment they were healed of a condition that has paralyzed them from being able to sleep for the last eight years. Don't you love what the Lord is capable of doing among us? Um, when we do what he told us to do in the way that he told us to do it, there'll be fruit. And um, you'll, you'll hear more about this soon because I'm going to talk about it a bit more. But we'd like to ask you to commit to praying on a Sunday night at 9pm for a building for this church but also that we would be a church that starts to plant churches. We don't want to back off from the thing that we're called to. We'd love to invite you to, to be on your knees at that time. A uh, little thing in your diary as a reminder. I was going to say, let's do it monthly, but you're like, why on earth would we do that? Let's do this thing weekly that all over the city, there would be a yearning and a crying out among us for a move of the Lord because we need the Lord to move. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, he will hear our prayers and answer from heaven. At the start of the next year, I give you this warning now, we're going to ask you to join us throughout the whole of January to fast. Don't panic, I'm not asking you to fast for the whole month, but imagine, wouldn't it be amazing if a number of us committed to different slots and we covered the whole of the month as we step into the new year to fast and to pray and to long for the Spirit of God to fall upon us, that we would be a fruit-producing church. If you've stalled, if you're coasting, if your faith is dry... Can I invite you to come in again afresh this morning? John 15, verse 5, those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We want to remain in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Will you join us again in reflecting on Jesus again this morning? Come and see him all over again. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, I have decided that while I was with you, I'd forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Would it be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all over again? You may have noticed if you've been here more than one week, I've only really got one talk. I just try and say it in a slightly different way. I just, I kind of want to talk about Jesus again, if I'm honest. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, because we're people of the cross decided that whilst I was with you, I'd forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. We want to follow him. We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to find freedom and forgiveness in these arms. We want to find life and truth and hope and power and restoration. And would every idol, man-made and otherwise, fall before him that he would be high and lifted up? I pray again, as I always do, we make much of Jesus together this morning. If you were here last week, I said... Um, I felt like it was quite a hard talk. I was talking about money, and I know that can be quite divisive, and I was kind of hoping this morning would be slightly easier. And then I read the passage, and it's basically about sin and repentance. So um, those of you that literally walked in the room <laughs> right then, I'm sorry. But I, I want to talk about this. How, how, I want to do a kind of a how-to on finding joy. We want to find joy. I believe there's joy to be found in repentance. But a quick warning, this isn't necessarily any easier or lighter than last week. <clears throat> I don't know if you're like me. I, um, 
I love just to get stuff done. If, if you get instructions with IKEA furniture, the instructions for me kind of get in the way. It's a waste of time. You just build the thing, you feel your way through it, and you, you make a start and you see how it goes. And if you need to, you look back on the instructions if needed. But it's like a secondary thing. And uh, if you do that, if you're anything like me, you'll have wasted an awful lot of time, made an awful lot of mistakes. And um, this will be a good reminder for all of you to pray for Steph. But honestly, praise Jesus for her in many ways, but praise her as well because she saved me from destroying a lot of IKEA furniture but not having fully learned from that <clears throat> I actually sadly do exactly the same thing in the car the sat nav is quite handy and it does tell you where you're going but I don't always have time to even put the address in I just why wait a minute for the thing to load let's just go and we'll work it out as we go and I know roughly where I'm going because you know I can feel my way there and I've got a sense of direction don't wait for directions don't ask someone just feel your way through it because really I don't know, maybe this is just a me thing, but sometimes it's just about confidence. You know, if you're confident, you'll, you'll roughly get there. And honestly, so many of you are learning so much this morning, and mainly it involves praying for Steph. And some of you will be quite worried about me. And I just want to say, honestly, I'm actually fine. We've just celebrated 18 years, been married. This is an illustration, not a counselling session. But we, we, we try sometimes, don't we, to live our spiritual lives just by being confident, by being and going our own way and by trying to figure it out and never necessarily turning around. And when we do that, I think actually we're truly lost. We will never find our way home by doing that or living like that. And one essential thing about the spiritual life is really that it involves and it requires turning around. It requires and it involves repentance. In order to find God, we actually have to look behind ourselves we have to forsake the path that we're on in order to find the path that we've been missing today i'm going to frame this as i have the rest of our conversations around the book of luke i'm going to jump in with luke 15 and it says this if you've got a bible in verse one it says this tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to jesus teach what a verse. If you um, highlight anything in your Bible, if you want to remember anything today, surely that's the verse. There is hope for me. There is hope for us. Romans 7 verse 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would we almost commit to memorizing that verse? Tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. What an amazing sentence. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, people have, in their sin have sown these fig leaves and hidden themselves from God. Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like some people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. But here, the people approach him, tax collectors who were detested people at the time. Ancient Jews despised them as traitors to the nation and supporters of their oppression. Sinners refers to all types of immoral people living contrary to God's word. And these despised and immoral people want to hear Jesus. 
and this kind of almost revival breaks out. Verse 2 alerts us to, to a problem that the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining that this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. The kind of the meaning you get from this sentence, I think, depends on part the tone with which you associate with the words through reading it. But, for example, the, the Pharisees and the scribes' words could actually mean that this could be read with wonder. Yeah, there's a holy man, the God-man, who welcomes and eats with sinners. There's almost a sense of awe in their words. God in the flesh has come into the world and receives these outcasts and these sinners, and he eats with them. This is what Jesus is like. He's somebody who is near the broken and the contrite, and he draws people to him in humility and kindness, and a world of wonder should really be inhabiting their words. However, they're uttering these words as a complaint, or is not their tone. It's actually one of grumbling. What the Pharisees think they see disturbs them. All they see are sinners, and how can this, these people with unclean sinners are so inappropriate to spend time with a rabbi, a holy man, who shouldn't have dirty people in his presence? And they say, this man welcomes sinners, and that's bad news, that's a bad thing in their interpretation. They utter the most precious words imaginable by saying, Jesus welcomes sinners not to condemn Jesus, but to condemn him. And an amazing situation. I think this kind of raises the question, what and how do we see when we look at Jesus? Do we regard him with grumbling or do we see him with wonder? Do we think the Lord to be somebody is hard or somebody's tender? And their grumbling kind of provides the context for these three parables that you can read in Luke 15. And I'm going to do this quickly, but it's going to sound like I'm not. I think the six reasons we can take from this as reasons maybe why we should consider repentance. Some of you, this will be for the first time. For many of us, would this be a lifestyle that we're people that repent? Because repentance isn't just a duty that we perform. Repentance isn't merely the hard part. Repentance isn't just leaving behind some of the things that actually we once enjoyed. Repentance, I think, in the context of this passage and these parables, is the fountain of joy in heaven. We find joy in repentance. Nothing prompts a party in heaven like the turning of a sinful soul to a saviour. So the first one is this, repent because we are of great worth in the sight of God. Let me read to you Luke 15 verse 3 to 7 says this. <clears throat> so Jesus told them this story, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? When he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go in search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Do we think when we read this passage in this context that the Pharisees really valued the people who were coming to Jesus? I, I don't. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, they were already enough people in this religious club 
that they'd created. There was already the right kind of people spending time with Jesus. And we've got to be careful, I think, to never assume that we're big enough as a church or a small group. Or that we've got enough people here that already know Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, why doesn't God relax and settle for the great numbers that he's already got in his possession? Why doesn't he look at the 99 and feel satisfied? Why is he carrying out this diligent search? Why go to such lengths and take such risks to, 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 to secure just one more sheep or one more coin? Is it not because God places such a high value on a soul that ultimately belongs to him? These sheep and these coins, they have owners. This one wandering lamb belongs to a shepherd. The one missing coin belongs to the woman. They're owned and they're valued. There is poverty that comes to the owner when they are missing the thing that belongs to them. There's a wanting and a longing in the owner's heart. The owner feels their absence. We will pray for small groups and churches to be planted because we have to reach the lost. That's why we can't remain comfortable and cosy with the 99. We go after the solitary lost sheep. That's why we can't sit comfortably in the house, but we ransack it until we find the lost and the missing coin. They feel the loss. Verse 7 teaches that the 99 righteous people cannot produce more happiness in heaven than just one sinner turning from their sin towards God. Kind of keep Jesus's audience in mind when we read these passages that he's got the self-righteous Pharisees are kind of like the 99 and the sinners and the tax collectors are the one lost sheep. Jesus tells the audience that one sinner's repentance pleases God more than the self-deceiving self-righteousness of the 99 Pharisees and when the unrepentant are found and recovered by the owner of their souls, their worth and their value are once again felt and affirmed by God. What a remarkable passage this is. Heaven rejoices over every repentant sinner because the sinner is of great worth to God. The worst thing in the world is not to be a sinner, but it's to be a sinner who thinks God doesn't value them. Honestly, God deeply values us. The value God attaches to the sinner's soul is kind of seen in the cross and the blood of Jesus. If we turn to God, we discover that God was not out to crush us, but to save us and to make us his own. For me, if I'm really honest, as I was reflecting on this this week, I, I could stop there. I'm kind of done, if I'm honest. I've had enough for this week, I could just be on my knees and repent and cry and go off in search of the lost. But let's keep going. Let's go to the second thing I wanted to say is this. Repent because our repentance brings joy to God. Verse 8 says this. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search continually until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Joy is kind of all over this chapter. 
He's, he's riddled it with it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, verse 5, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. Verse 9, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I found this lost coin. Verse 10, angels sing and celebrate over a single soul who repents. Verse 23, the father says to his servants, let's celebrate with a feast. The celebration grows as every sinner is brought safely home in repentance. Friends and neighbors, verse 6 to 9, and angels, verse 10, and they're called to share in this joy, and heaven rejoices even at finding a lost soul. And our God will one day call us into the halls of a banquet and offer us delight in the miracle of one lost soul that is now a found repentant sinner brought home on the shoulders of Jesus. And if heaven is happy at the repentance of sinners, we will share in that happiness too, and we will experience this rejoicing for the unending days of glory. There's perhaps something remarkably Jewish about the reference to the angels in verse 10, because rather than use the name of God and risk taking it in vain, faithful Jewish people would often use the throne of God or the angels as a reference to God himself and those in his presence, because angels reflect the heart of God himself. And kind of false humility claims not to be worthy of God seeking and saving us, and false humility keeps us from repentance. But verse 10's emphasis on only one repenting shatters, I think, such a false humility. God takes time to pursue the individual. When that individual repents, God takes time to celebrate, and he invites all of heaven to celebrate along with him. I think it speaks volumes of the value that God places on the individual. Heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner. We do, and we should. The Pharisees don't, but we should be people who rejoice. The third thing is this, repent because sin destroys our lives. Verse 11 phrases it like this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man has two sons. The youngest son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this young son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Sin is a destroyer and Satan is a devourer. Consider this young son's decline into sin and squalor. You know, in this third story, I, I think Jesus kind of slows the film down slightly. The first two parables, by comparison, are quite short and quite quick and focus on God's action of granting us repentance. The first two are so much shorter. And in this third parable, it's almost like Jesus slows it down to show us what takes place in our lives when we start to descend into sin 
but when we also later realise the need for repentance. As a member of his father's house, when this young man starts, he starts with everything. Do you see that in the passage? But he's ungrateful, he's impatient, he makes himself fatherless, verse 12, because he wants to gratify his own sinful nature. He makes himself homeless by going to a distant land and a distant country, verse 13, without control or delayed gratification. He ends up penniless, verse 14. In the end, he's friendless and he's foodless, verse 15 and 16. He wallows in the pig pen with what Jewish people would consider disgustingly unclean animals. A sinful life goes from riches to rags and his life slides deeper and deeper into this squalor and loneliness and if you live for yourself you will soon live by yourself can I just say that again because I think it's important if you live for yourself you will soon live by yourself he doesn't have a friend in the world to help him verse 16 that's kind of what it looks like to live apart from Jesus and from the advantage point of heaven but God the father watches his rich but rebellious children squander his love and his riches as they run from him for the far off country of sin and sinners wanting all the goodness of God's creation and all the enjoyment of his blessings but they don't want God himself they kind of want the kingdom but they don't want the king to rule in that kingdom they do not understand his fatherhood they refuse to listen to his love unless that God restrains the sinner they squander their lives and they waste away as they chase the desires of the flesh life apart from god i know this sounds stark but it's kind of really just a slow death because apart from god we are living to die in repentance we are dying to live it's dying to self that allows us to find jesus and find the fullness of who he is the fourth reason I want to give you is this. Repent because sin is a kind of insanity. Verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and kissed him. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him and kissed him. I think there's three adjustments that start to come into this son's life. The first one is this, recognition. When he came to his senses, verse 17, it kind of suggests that he'd been out of his mind in a rebellion and a sin. He'd lived a nightmare, but called it a dream. He thought he was living his best life, but he was having a nightmare. Something somehow snaps him back into place and all of a sudden he comes to his senses and he began to recognize something. What did he recognize? He recognized the goodness of God. He's a servant in the fields begging for the pods that a swine would eat. But in his father's house, the hired servants have more than enough bread. Unlike the master in the far country, the younger son's father is generous towards those that serve him. A man cannot repent until he sees the insanity of his sin 
in the light of the goodness of God. Living apart from God and the God's gracious rule honestly amounts to craziness and depravity. I want to remind us again of don't live in the distant country. Fall on our knees before the good and the gracious. God, first comes the recognition, second comes the resolution. The son decides his place is actually and should be with his father. More than that, he decides to, t- to make one of the greatest confessions, I think, in the Bible. He confesses his sin against heaven, against God, as well as his father. He confesses without conditions and without qualifications he makes no excuse he offers no explanation he sinned end of the problem with most confessions is that they primarily primarily sorry express regret of the consequences of sin rather than the regret of sin itself that's the difference i think between worldly sorrow and godly repentance you can see it in 2 corinthians 7 verse 10 i won't go there now but i just think it's a reality you've got recognition resolution and finally resignation he sees himself and his sin in the light of god's goodness and god's greatness he knows his depravity so he resigns any thoughts of sonship He would settle now just to be a servant in his father's house, given his sin. He can't claim to be a son. He can only hope to serve. And with true repentance, those who are willing to turn to God begin to see God as they've never seen him before. It's an amazing thing when we turn to God in this way. You see him like never before. They begin to recognize the greatness the unbelievable, overwhelming nature of the love and the character of God. You see his generous character and they understand the holiness of a God and the wretchedness of sin. They're brought low and they're humbled and they know that God is generous, so they come to him. They know their sins are great, so they make no demands on God. That's kind of what this son is doing. And the humility of repentance doesn't actually set its gaze on much, just on the hope of inclusion. The hope of just being a hired hand, a servant. Repentant people plead only to be servants. And they would leave all their sins in the lowest place in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I think you can read that in Psalm 84. Repentance is this beautiful thing that brings us to an understanding of a beautiful God. And just as this young son now sees his own father as wonderful, heaven rejoices when God is valued in that way. The fifth thing is this, repent because God will still be a loving father to us. Verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, kill the calf. We have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but he's now found. So the party begins. The son returns to the father and makes his confession in verse 21. He's no doubt filthy. He's in rags. He's been eating pig food in a pigsty. And he was once the prince at a party. And now he returns as a pauper thinking himself orphaned by his sin. He has no claim to the family. He prematurely requested and then subsequently wasted 
his inheritance, his share in the family. He does not expect any longer to be treated as a son, but his repentance, I believe, creates a theatre for the display of God's glory and the richness of his grace for us to see afresh this morning. Just see how the Father responds with love. And some of you, you need to hear and you need to know this this morning. You need to receive the goodness of God in this way. It says this here, he went up, he got up, he went to his father while his son was still a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around him, around his neck, and he kissed him. And the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Do you see and can you receive afresh this morning the love of the Father for you? The Father recognises the son's sin and destruction long before the young man did. He saw the folly coming. He saw it a long way off. He also saw his son coming home from a distant land, verse 20. There is compassion. There is tenderness and an embrace and a kiss. There is adoption and there is generosity. The father receives his son as a son. He places a ring on his finger and a robe on him, almost signs of sonship, verse 22. And there it is again. If we hadn't already seen it, we find joy. He killed the fattened calf and he says, hey, Let's celebrate. Here's where the gospel, I believe, defies every human expectation. We think the son should be punished if we read it in a right mind. We think the father would have been generous to simply allow the son back as a servant. We think the son could and perhaps should have been cut off. He spent his inheritance. How can he come back asking for anything but the father, the father in the story? A reflection, although very faint, of the nature of God, the Father, pours out the storehouses of his grace and his mercy at the faraway sign of the Son's repentance. Even a hint of it, he's longing for it. The distant sighting of this sinner returns and he pours out the fountain of his remarkable love. The sinner who turns finds that as he turns right into the waiting arms of a loving Father, can I say to you honestly this morning, if you have, if you are wasting your life in sin and if you feel trapped and no route back, turn into the merciful arms of the Father because the Father's love is tender and compassionate and you can come to him without fear because he's actually waiting and longing and looking out for you. The final thing, the sixth thing is this. Repent because repentant reflects the miracle of new birth. We've kind of already read the story of the prodigal son, but verse 24 says this, For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. When we repent, a resurrection happens. The one who was dead in trespass and sin, in which they once walked, has been made alive again through Jesus. The lostness is, wasn't just actually a misplacement. The lostness was death. The son had been dead to the father, but in the miracle of repentance, he has been raised to the newness of life. He's been brought back, not as a corpse for a funeral, but as a living soul for a banquet. 
Heaven finds repentance beautiful because it brings back to life those that were killed and destroyed and robbed by the enemy. There's never a downside to repentance. We may sometimes feel our confessions and our repentance will result in loss and more pain or something worse. These parables, I think, change us not just to think that way and it challenges us not to think that way. That we find ourselves in, the, in maybe the pig trough, the reward of coming back to God will far and away be greater than anything we risk losing from that trough. If we repent, God will be our father. And unlike any human father, as great or as poor as they may have been to you, how they may have failed you in your life, God will be the perfect father who never fails, who never forsakes, who never punishes for his own convenience, but clothes us, loves us, and rejoices over us. There is no father like God the Father. I want to say to you this morning, will you come ready to be loved? If the engine has stalled, there's always a way back, and that way back is always through repentance. Repentance is the joy of heaven, it's the joy of church, but it's the joy of a sinner finding a father who loves them. When we repent, we walk into his joy. Sin that destroyed dignity and value is restored in repentance because repentance returns our lostness to the presence and the pleasure of Jesus and his care and his affirmation of us. Why don't we stand together? As, as we do, if you've not been here before, let's just take a moment before the Lord. You might want to close your eyes. You might want to hold out your hands like you're receiving a gift because it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't jump in in our words. Let's just allow the goodness of God to fall upon us. The Spirit of the living God come upon us. There'll be a weight and a heaviness in this room for a number of you as you come into the realisation and the acknowledgement of the freedom, the forgiveness, the love that is found in the arms of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, on us. I believe a number of you, even in this moment, are almost allowing some of the things you said never could be, never would be, the deepest, darkest things that would almost put a distance between you and God just to be nailed to the cross. Come and repent all over again. Mm. Come and find, receive the unconditional love of God.
Jesus, we pray you would release your love in this room. The oldest line in the book is we could do better somewhere else. Someone, something will make us happier than you can. But your love for us is so great, Lord, where there are lies and blockages to people receiving that this morning in Jesus' name. Break through them. Release your love. The Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Come on, minister to us. had a sense that there are some people here who were kind of stirred by what Paul was saying about God's love and his mercy but there's a kind of blockage around but I need help I'm stuck I was just thinking about the word grace mercy is forgiveness mercy is the cross but grace is the power that God freely gives grace is what the Holy Spirit gives us to be different And I think there's a moment this morning to, to respond to that. To the Lord, I think there's a verse in Hebrews. Uh, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If that's you this morning, if you are repenting and responding but you know you need help, absolutely believe God is going to meet you in that. Holy Spirit, would you come? We know you come. Pour out your power for freedom and for change. Just believe the Lord's going to pour out a few things on us this morning. I think there's going to be... Um, the breaking of our hearts for the lost. God is a God who looks for lost things that they might be found. I believe he's going to break some of our hearts afresh for the lost. I believe there's going to be a desperation and a hunger that rises up in a number of you, almost like an intercessory longing. You know, the thing I mentioned about the building and church planting, there's going to be a, a desire and a stirring. And I also believe, um, as we always do, there's, there's, there's a... There's a grace for physical healing in the room. We did it last week, but some of the, uh, the, the kids are going to join us this morning. And there's some seats on your right-hand side, my left-hand side. That you can go and join, and some of those kids are going to pray over you for physical healing. They have remarkable faith, and we're seeing remarkable things. And uh, if you have a physical condition that you would love to have prayed for, go and, go and allow them to lay hands on you and pray for you. Yeah. As we're as we're stood in this moment, I also believe a number of you will you, you almost want to physically step into something as a sign of spiritually stepping into something, and you will want people to stand with you and pray with you. So whilst it's easier to get out of the rows, why don't why don't we do that now? You might want to come to the front so that someone in a small group can join you. Equally, for those for physical healing, you might want to just go to the sides for 
people to come and pray for you. But there is a there's a there's a stir, and I can sense there's a grace this morning. Why don't we step into it? Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to ManchesterVineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.